I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Buckeyes were on fire. They broke through with their first ever undefeated season in 1899. For the first time ever, they had won the only championship that mattered. They were champions of Ohio. And the winning wasn't due to blind luck. It was due to the leadership of the players. Quarterback Paul Hardy, the vicious running attack of B.F. Yost, James Westwater and Boss Kittle, the dominant line play of the Seagrass brothers, John and Charles, the Bosa brothers of their day, and of course, the playmaking anchor of the team, tackle and captain, Dell Sayers. These Buckeyes had elite coaching too, John Eckstorm. Coach Eckstorm, who friends just called Jack, led the OSU program back from the brink. In the two seasons before Coach showed up, the Buckeyes posted a 4-12-1 record. Coach Eckstorm was a star. He started halfback and captain at Dartmouth and now wowed once more as head coach of the Buckeyes. In his first season, the Buckeyes finished 9-0-1. Not only did OSU smash the opposition, the athletic department, which had gone broke only two seasons earlier, turned a corner. The 1899 season was the most success from a financial standpoint the athletic department had ever seen. And the athletic department knew a good thing when they saw it. They re-signed Coach Eckstorm to a multi-year deal. It was the first time in OSU football history that a coach had ever signed a multi-year contract. Under the capable leadership of their coach, the Buckeyes surged. But... Just as fast as OSU rose to heights of champions, they would soon face an event that would see many on campus call for the end of the football program altogether. An event that would prove the most heart-wrenching in the history of the program. The death of a star player. Nineteen oh one was a year marked by loss. In January in England, Queen Victoria passed away, bringing to an end her reign of more than sixty-three years. In September, Ohio native President William McKinley was assassinated. His vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, took office as commander-in-chief. It turned out President Roosevelt was a big fan of college football. Teddy saw the game cultivated the qualities of strength and teamwork. 
In a speech to Harvard, his alma mater, Roosevelt spoke about the virtues of the game. I believe in outdoor games, and I do not mind in the least that they are rough games or that those who take part in them are occasionally injured. I have no sympathy, whatever, with the overwrought sentimentality that would keep a young man in cotton wool, and I have a hearty contempt for him if he counts a broken arm or collarbone as a serious consequence when balanced against the chance of showing that he possesses hardihood, physical address, and courage. But where Roosevelt saw strength in virtue-forming character molded on the gridiron, he also observed a dark side of the game. Football of the 1900s was a deadly sport. Scores of players died playing the game. And the game suffered problems beyond the seriousness of player safety. The use of professional ringers, corruption, and recruiting scandals were legion. The game of the day looked more like rugby than the football we've come to know. Forward passes were illegal. Success required brute force and strength. And equipment was really bad. Today's modern helmets were nowhere to be found. Soft leather caps were optional, and even those were rarely worn. Fighting marred the sport. So while Teddy Roosevelt admired the character-building base of the game, he spoke against the foul play that had become a regular part of football. Roosevelt said, When these injuries are inflicted by others, either wantonly or of set design, we are confronted by the question not of damage to one man's body, but of damage to the other man's character. Brutality playing a game should awaken the hardiest and most plainly shown contempt for the player guilty of it, especially if this brutality is coupled with a low cunning and committing it without getting caught by the umpire. I hope to see both graduate and undergraduate opinion come to scorn such a man as one guilty of base and dishonorable action, who has no place in the regard of gallant and upright men. There was, as there ever is, good and bad aspects of the game, but more than any time in its history, football increasingly found itself putting the livelihood of its players in jeopardy, and this was all unnecessary. The Washington Post reflected on the barbaric state of the game, which continually resulted in the deaths of its participants. Nearly every death may be traced to unnecessary roughness. Picked up unconscious from beneath a mass of other players, it was generally found that the victim had been kicked in the head or stomach as to call internal injuries or concussion of the brain, which, sooner or later, ended life. Amid the foul play and alarming rates of player injury, Ohio State's program appeared to be turning the corner. Undefeated champions. The best team in the state of Ohio. John Eckstorm's first season leading OSU was great, but it was also now history. As summer turned to fall, excitement built around campus for the new season to come. The year was 1900. Could Eckstorm keep OSU rolling? Could Eckstorm's OSU squad be back-to-back -back state champs? The core of Eckstorm's dynamic 1899 team returned. Columbus native Paul Hardy at quarterback was a field general and brains of the offense. He was complemented in the backfield with the heavy and hard running style of James Westwater at halfback. Another bruising runner, James Kittle, returned at fullback. Folks just called Kittle by a simple nickname, Boss. And of course, the two Seagrass brothers, the Bosa brothers of their day, Charles and John, 
held down the offensive and defensive fronts. Both brothers were elite, and Jond, who served as a captain of the 98 Buckeye squad, stood as one of the best players at any position in the state. J.H. Tilton, one of the most versatile linemen in the state, captained the Buckeye squad. The great ones make it look easy, and Tilton was a natural. He earned a spot on the varsity only three days after donning a football uniform for the first time when he first joined the team two years ago. Popular among the players, Tilton was a devastating force alongside the Seagrass brothers. And there were new faces on the team, too. The team welcomed talented freshman Lynn St. John to add depth at the halfback role. It was the start of St. John's impact on the university, where, years later, he would become one of the most influential athletic directors in Ohio State history. Shortly before the season started, the Ohio State student newspaper The Lantern obtained and printed a letter from Coach Ekstorm to the team captain, Tilton. Ekstorm was tied up in administrative meetings on the East Coast. Meetings and meetings and more meetings after that. And with the season quickly approaching, he gave Tilton an overview of how he wanted things to roll in his absence. I want you to get the men in shape. You can do it all right without my presence. Have them run about half a mile with an easy gait each day, and then after three or four days, make it three quarters of a mile. Let them fall on the ball, catch punts, and kick the ball. Don't do any tackling until I come. You know how I want it done. We will have a winning team this fall. Xstorm was right. OSU rolled. Otterbein, Ohio University, Cincinnati, Ohio Wesleyan, Oberlin, West Virginia. The Buckeyes crushed them, outscoring them a total of 160 points to nothing. Case, the only team to tie Ohio State the previous year, fared only slightly better. Case scored 10. Congratulations, Case. But Ohio State scored 24. The Buckeyes avenged their only blemish on last year's record. Ohio State now stood at 7-0. Next up, an old foe, Ohio Medical. Ohio Medical, who would one day go on to become the future medical and dental school of Ohio State, were no slouches at football, and their methods were not without controversy. Medical was rumored to have a ringer on their roster, and OSU's athletic department wouldn't tolerate it. The athletic department canceled the game. Ohio Medical relented and booted the alleged ringer from the team. So, OSU's athletic department changed course, and the game was back on. But there was a problem. Ohio State's team had already been told the game was canceled. They didn't get word that the game was back on until Wednesday, only days before the Saturday game. Because of it, the Buckeyes didn't run through their normal game week practice routine, and they didn't have time to. With minimal practice, Ohio Medical stunned the Buckeyes with an 11-6 upset. Buckeye fans were furious at the athletic department. The start and stop again scheduling left OSU with hardly any time to prepare for the Ohio Medical game. The Lantern weighed in. It must be said that this loss was not the result of any loafing or carelessness on the team's part. It must be credited to the facilitating policy of the athletic board. On Wednesday evening after practice came the announcement that the cancelled game would be played. 
This gave Coach Ekstorm one regular practice and one light Friday evening practice to prepare for a harder game than any the team had yet played. The men responded nobly to his aid, but two or three hours practice was not enough to perfect our heavy plays and the result was not surprising. An injustice was done to Mr. Ekstorm, Mr. Tilton, and to every member of the team in compelling them to prepare for the game on such short notice. Fans were unhappy, but these Buckeyes were good, and they quickly rebounded. OSU went up to Ann Arbor, playing the powerhouse Wolverines for only the second time ever, and walked away with a 0-0 draw. Days later, OSU easily handled an undefeated Kenyan team. For the second season in a row, the Buckeyes had laid claim to the only title that mattered, the best team of Ohio. Ekstorm had the Buckeyes flying, and with many starters returning for the 1901 season, OSU stood poised to climb even higher. Two back-to-back championships, the only championship worth a damn, the championship of Ohio. Now, as the calendar turned, the Buckeyes settled in for the drive for the 3 P. The core of the team that won the previous two seasons returned, ready for action in 1901. Third-year hard-charging fullback Boss Kittle captained the team. Kittle had a nickname for the players returning. He called them the Old War Horses. After all, they had been through quite a few battles together and came out victorious. The Lantern interviewed Boss and Coach Ekstorm prior to the season. They did not lack for confidence. Boss said, I do not believe we could wish for better. With our old coach and his able assistant and material both old and new that will be in college, I see no reason why the team should finish the season any under its present standing. Coach Ekstorm, in his characteristic brevity, got straight to the point. I see no reason why we can't have just as good a team as the last two were. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The old war horses were ready to ride once more. The heavyset rumbling James Westwater returned at tailback. He was joined again by quarterback Paul Hardy in the backfield, whose command of the offense was already legendary. And of course again, found causing havoc along the lines were the Seagrass brothers, John and Charles. They dictated the tempo of the offensive and defensive fronts. The team proved rusty in a 0-0 draw in the opener against Otterbein. Then, as if flipping a switch, 
The Buckeyes rose to ferocious form. They shut out Wittenberg, Ohio, and Marietta by a combined score of 71-0. Next up stood an old foe, Western Reserve, and Western was really good. They had won four out of five games against the Buckeyes, and the team was still smarting from a close loss to Ohio State two seasons earlier. It was an unseasonably warm day in late October. The game was a back-and-forth, nerve-wracking affair. The lantern captured the scene. Ladies carrying scarlet and gray pennants crumbled their scorecards in nervous hands, and the gentlemen in the bleachers found constant employment for the strongest epithets which their vocabulary contained, profane and otherwise. Early in the second half, Western ran up the middle for a two-yard gain. It was the kind of hard-won yards that defined the OSU-Western matchup that day. Lumbering power runs up the middle, yielding but a yard or two. But Ohio State center, John Segrist, the anchor of the middle of the defense, was not going to let that happen again. John lined up, as ever, his brother Charles by his side. The brothers, the Bosa brothers of their day, hunkered down for the next snap. John shot off the line lower than usual to get leverage and accidentally struck Western's lineman with his head. John felt the blow from the lineman and fell backwards. There was a pileup, and when the play ended, John Segrist lay on the ground, hurt badly. Soon an ambulance arrived and John was taken to Grant Hospital. The injury was more serious than first suspected. John suffered a broken neck, and doctors scrambled to save his life. Ohio State won the day 6-5, but focus turned quickly to the health of their injured teammate. Students read bulletin boards around campus, updated regularly with John's status. All the while, in his medical bed in Grant Hospital, John was in good spirits. At 1.30 Monday, October 28th, two days after the game, John Segrist died. He was in little pain when the time came, surrounded by family. For the first time, for the only time, in Ohio State football history, a player died of injuries sustained from directly playing in a game. Ohio mourned for its lost son. Grief filled the pages of the lantern from friends and clubs around campus that John's life touched, and his life had touched so many. The McKinley Club wrote that, we extend our most heartfelt sympathy to the family in this, their great bereavement. The Athenian Literary Society wrote, In his death, the Ohio State University has lost one of its best students. A young man of sterling Christian character and of sunny disposition, he easily won the respect and esteem not only of his classmates and fellow students, but everyone with whom he came in contact. Students in John's major of agriculture wrote, It has been the will of God to deprive us of our beloved fellow student, whose inspiring companionship and hearty cooperation in all things helpful to university life won him the esteem and admiration of all. Western Reserve, the opponent who John suffered the fatal freak injury against, wrote, we deplore the sad accident which has deprived the Ohio State University of the character and services of John L. Segrist. The junior class, the senior class, they all wrote, they all grieved. The Ohio State family had lost a brother. And in that grief, thankful of the outpouring of support, Charles Segrist, John's younger brother and Ohio State's starting right tackle, extended his thanks 
in the pages of the Lantern. I wish to express my gratitude to all the individuals and organizations that have been so kind and thoughtful during the past week. It has been a great satisfaction to myself and my relatives to feel that we have the sympathy of so many friends in this time of deep affliction. John Segrist was laid to rest in his hometown of Congress, Ohio. The church was filled. The service started at 2 o'clock. Friends, neighbors, and representatives of Ohio State gathered. Condolences came from all over the Buckeye State. Flowers aligned the chapel from old football foes, Ohio Medical and Western Reserve, and of course, from Ohio State. The service was beautiful, filled with prayer and song. As it drew to a close, OSU Captain Boss Kittle addressed the grieving crowd, speaking on behalf of the OSU football team. We come here this evening to honor the memory of one who was a friend to all of us. There is no comparison to be drawn between the various paths of his life. He did everything with the same spirit. So in athletics, he started in with that spirit and energy which are sure to bring success. A harder and more true player than John Segrist was never on the field. We can never forget his character. And I will say that when in the future any of us need spirit and confidence for the performance of any act, we only have to think of him. He shall be a model for us in the future as athletes. Virtue, truth, friendship, and love were the emblems of his life. In the wake of John Segrist's death, a new question arose on campus. Should football be canceled for good? After all, player safety was at risk. Things moved quickly. President Thompson canceled the upcoming game against Ohio Wesleyan. Debate raged on campus, with many students and faculty supporting the cancellation of the entire season. Parents of players on the team grew fearful for the safety of their sons. The parents of Field General starting quarterback Paul Hardy stepped in. They urged their son to stop playing, and he and another player left the team. The future of the football team, of the program, was up in the air, and as passionate debates stirred on campus, the athletic board turned to the team. It would be their decision if the season, if the program, continued. In all the moments of all the challenges that Ohio State faced over its history, this meeting was perhaps the most important. Two options lay before the team, to play out the year in the memory of their fallen brother John, or to cancel the remainder of the season, recognizing that the brutality of the game they played could just as easily visit serious injury upon them. The team was distraught, and amid that sadness, John Segrist's younger brother Charles delivered a clear message. Play the game. Keep the program alive. The message rallied the team. They, they would play through their grief. They would honor their fallen brother. It was decided then, the old war horses would ride once more. Days later, after the team's decision to play on, a resolution to suspend the football program was roundly defeated in a vote by the OSU faculty. The old war horses rode into battle once more, but they were incomplete. Nevertheless, they played with courage and character. Their next opponent was one of the best teams of all time, 
fielding Yost's point-a-minute Michigan Wolverines. The Buckeyes played the Wolverines closer than any team all season, coming up short. The Buckeyes finished the season with a 5-3-1 record. The tragedy of the season took its toll on the players and coaches alike. Coach Eckstorm, beloved by the fans and idolized by his players, surprised all. Eckstorm quit. Eckstorm told a friend that the 1901 season contained more hard luck than that of all the hard luck he had faced in all his years. He was not done coaching, though. He became the head coach at Ohio Medical. Ohio State was stunned by Eckstorm's departure, but the move was not criticized in the pages of the Lantern. Instead, the OSU community was thankful for the contribution Eckstorm made to the program. After all, Coach inherited a program on the rocks. The Buckeyes posted a 4-12-1 record in the two seasons before he took over. In Eckstorm's three years, he had racked up a 22-4-3 record. He was the first coach to finish with a winning record in OSU history, the first coach to capture the title of the best team in Ohio, and he did that twice. And he was the first coach to play the mighty Michigan program to an even draw. But for all his wins, for all Coach Eckstorm did to take the program to the next level, his legacy and departure was defined by loss. John Segrist's death in 1901 was one of the many across college football. According to the Washington Post, from 1900 to 1905, 45 players died as a result of their football injuries. President Teddy Roosevelt had had enough, and in 1905, Roosevelt summoned coaches from the leading programs of the day in the East, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, to the White House. He urged them to clean up the game. Roosevelt's action marked the first time a president had urged reform of collegiate sports, and it worked. Later that year, 62 schools met and adopted rules to make the game safer. They created the neutral zone, banned dangerous formations, and legalized the forward pass. As a result, deaths and serious injuries dropped. But football is a dangerous game. It would never be completely safe. After Coach Eckstorm left Ohio State, the Buckeyes kept up their winning ways, but the program also took a step back. With Eckstorm gone in 1902, the Buckeyes lost by 86 points to the Michigan Wolverines. It remains the biggest blowout in the Ohio State-Michigan series. Legend has it that after that drubbing, on the train ride back from Ann Arbor, Fred A. Cornell, a backup defensive end, wrote Carmen, Ohio. Cornell didn't have the chance to know John Seagrest. He didn't have the chance to play alongside John's brother Charles, who transferred shortly after John's death. Cornell joined an OSU program rebounding from a loss greater than any the Wolverines could inflict. The chimes of Carmen, Ohio are beautiful. Win or lose, they ring after every game. And they ring in no small part today because of the Seagrass brothers and the 1901 team, a team that faced impossible adversity and chose to play on to honor their fallen brother.
Thanks for listening to I Want to Go Back, a podcast about the people, places, and events that shaped Ohio State football. I'm your host, Jim Baird. This podcast is part of Land Grant Holy Land's network of Buckeye podcasts. If you did like what you listened to, please give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Music for this episode was provided by Fields Ohio, so a special thanks to them. As you know, a podcast like this builds on great research already out there. If you want to read more, I'd encourage you to check out The Die Hard Fan's Guide to Buckeye Football by Mark Ray, as well as the absolutely invaluable, the official Ohio State Football Encyclopedia by the legendary Jack Park. Both were terrific resources for me in my research and offer great insights into Ohio State football and OSU football history. Thanks for listening.